0: Hey, welcome back to another dispatch from Holly McKay. We're going back to Baghdad. And in this case, we're going to talk to Holly about one of her specialties as an investigative journalist in the world, tracking trials. And in this case, trials of ISIS terrorists. Holly, what have you found in Iraq having to do with this?
1: Yeah, well, so it's been oh gosh, more than five years now since "quote unquote" ISIS was defeated um, in Iraq. So, you know, over that time, there has been a number of trials that have happened, and people that are involved in you know, either fighting for ISIS or, you know, playing other roles such as working in hospitals or ISIS wives. And so um it, it's been quite a, a burden, if you will, on the Iraqi court system, which has just been sort of churning out. And and it's received a lot of criticism over, I mean, from human rights groups and things over um the way, how quick these trials happen. And so I really wanted to understand this in myself um and you are looking and and, you know one of the big criticisms really is um that these these men are being and women too are being sentenced to death you know with a, a five minute trial um you know not being able to to speak to their defense, public defender who is often under a lot of intimidation and there have certainly been ad- attacks on a lot of these court-assigned lawyers. Um, so they're really scared to, to sort of deal with their client too much or say too much in terms of their defence. Um, And so... You know, it's, it's been a big problem in the sense that people don't know that due diligence is done. However, I think it's also important to see things how the Iraqis see things. Um, and, you know, in just speaking to people in the streets of Iraq, um, you know, they've seen their friends die. They've seen, you know, their country really come to a standstill, um, entire cities raised to the ground as a result of this terrorist group, which it really at one point controlled a third of their of their country um and so they have very little sympathy in terms of ever believing that um, these men could be reformed or that they should be spending um, their money on trying to, to house them in prison for the rest of their lives. So, um, you know, Iraq's, Iraq has a, a very, I guess, a different approach or a sort of mentality overall um, as to how these, these men should be treated. And usually what you see happen in these trials is that, if they participated in fighting in any way, shape, or form, it's it's sort of an automatic death sentence. Uh, second to that, if you, even if you are somebody who who pledged allegiance, and and often what I've found over the years in my own reporting is that things happened, such as you might have been working in a bakery when ISIS came and took your village, and you still have eight children at home that you need to feed, and suddenly it's it's no longer. Um, you, know, you have a different boss. That boss that ha- that was running the bakery before, you know, he's now gone. ISIS is now the boss of this bakery, but they will continue to pay your wage if you keep working there and, and baking bread. Um, So you continue to work there and bake bread. And part of the protocol with keeping this job is that you are pledging allegiance at that point to Abu Baghdadi, uh, the former leader of ISIS. And so even if you were sort of in that situation where you really didn't have anywhere to go and, and not any, you know, other great prospects in life since the group took over the village um you would still be often sentenced to the maximum 25 to 30 years in jail and so i think that um you know that that's sort of a little bit controversial among many iraqis but it just shows you that uh, the government certainly isn't messing around
0: yeah now what was very interesting about uh reading through your piece is uh with your interview with the judge and uh, and the judicial process. How much research uh, the Iraqis actually put into each case as they prepare them for trial? That was um, uh, quite revealing. Tell us a yeah, little. Yeah,
1: so I, I guess the way that they see it, and I spent a lot of time with sort of their head investigative judge. His name was Tamimi. Very well educated. Very uh, had sort of great detail and knowledge about really every single one of these sort of cases. And, and he had certainly many files on his desk. Um, and the way he sort of explained some of the fast trials to me, again, very controversial and debatable compared to uh, how we how we do our judicial system. But he said, look, the evidence is all there. It's already been, Um, you know, they wouldn't be going to court if we weren't, you know, pretty much 100% sure they were going to be convicted. Because, mind you, when ISIS... They would go in and often get um, a lot of the records from the old hospitals or the old courthouses or, you know, and ISIS was incredible, you know, they were trying to be a government and I think it's easy for us just to think they were some, you know, crazy kind of bunch of people without any ability to... you know, bring technology or, or really run a place. And that wasn't true. ISIS was trying to be a government. So it was incredible about its record keeping. It would, um, you know, have names and fingerprints and incredible details about everyone and everything in sort of every town and every village and every prisoner that passed through and every person that worked in any level um, in their institution. So Iraq is sort of You know, the Iraqi investigators are really have these big teams that are that build sort of incredibly thick files, um, on each individual and and have a lot of very specific information on the alleged roles that they played in in different areas under the ISIS umbrella.
0: Yeah, so yeah, and it the one of the things that that this uh judge noted was that if they they can't get enough evidence or if the evidence isn't conclusive, they Mm -hmm. pretty much. Have a policy of releasing uh, the person, and uh, the only people they ever really bring to trial are the people where they, you know, they've they've amassed a fairly strong body of evidence. It's very similar to the Chinese system, uh, very unlike the American system, where which is, um, you know, you're presumed innocent right up until the very last second. But it's not like the Iraqi system is an unknown form of judicial uh, a judicial process uh, on this planet.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's certainly, um, it's very different to the way that we sort of process things, but it really speaks to how, uh, just sort of how fed up a lot of Iraqis are with with, um, you know, being in these perpetual states of war for so long. Um, And there was many that I I spoke to, including lawmakers who were just very frustrated that they weren't carrying out the death penalty sentences quicker. And, you know, their responses to me were that it needed to be fast tracked. And and why are we wasting time keeping them in prison? Um, So it's a sort of a very different um, uh, due process, if you will. And, uh, you know, that certainly it doesn't sit well with a lot of activists and a lot of human rights groups who, do, who don't believe that, um, you know, this is a fair and, and a lawful process.
0: Yeah. Well, that's the, the dissonance between uh, the Iraqis wanting this to be over with and, the, and Western attitudes towards uh, trial. Uh, but let, let's uh, switch because th- the other part of, of this piece that really fascinated me is uh, how much of ISIS is in prison but they're not in prison in Iraq. They're in prison in Syria, and that is a very unresolved part of uh, the ISIS cadre. That just it is, and you know,
1: but... in many ways, you know. If you're an ISIS fighter, you, you're probably um, you're probably better off being apprehended in Syria than in Iraq because in Iraq there's a good chance that you'll be handed a, a pretty hasty death sentence. In Syria, um, it's not the the areas that most of the ISIS fighters are under the control of the SDF. Syrian Democratic Forces, which were backed by the United States to uh, to run ISIS out. And, you know, they're a controversial group, mostly Kurds, great fighters, but, um, you know, connected to militia groups that were once considered to be or still are actually listed as terrorist organizations um, because of the the fighting that they did against the Turkish government. Um, so, But the the bottom line is that the SDF is not a recognized government. So these areas are not in control um, of Bashar al-Assad or any of the other, um, you know, he's blacklisted himself. So the SDF has to kind of keep control of this. But that means that they can't really carry out they don't really have the court system to carry out all the resources. And, and certainly, um, you know, there are always concerns in those places of jail breaks and they have happened. So I think shuttling people back and forth uh, to prisons, wouldn't be um, sort of the best approach given the stretch resources, the SDF has. Um, so this is sort of really in a stalemate right now. This is, um, you know, you've got all these ISIS prisoners who could be coming be, more radicalized while they're in jail Um, the international community since then has essentially turned a blind eye to to Syria to the ISIS conflict and yet you know this is a a huge part of it that is yet to be resolved and then there are also many of the wives and children in a lot of the camps and and certainly judge to Mimi that was one thing he brought up to me a lot was his worry about um, how you know, this is sort of the next generation of ISIS that are, are being radicalized in these places because there really is no hope and and no uh, conclusion to anything that is, is going to happen in their future.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, and that that was kind of a disturbing element to um, the description that you had in this thing where you've got essentially uh, ISIS, uh, ISIS fighters who are in, imprisoned in these jails in Syria. You have ISIS camps where uh, the next generation is being bred. Uh, it, uh, uh, per your article, that there are sleeper cells that are you know actively engaging in things and even cross-border incursions back into Iraq from um, uh, safe havens in, in Syria where the SDF has control. And um, so... As a uh, observer journalist, uh, do, do you see that um, this breeding ground uh, could result in somewhere along the way a resurgence of ISIS or, or something um, like it in the future because people are not paying attention to it?
1: Well, absolutely, nothing is being done about it. And while we turn a blind eye and move on to the next shiny uh, conflict or thing that drags our attention away, these things do fester and they come to slap us eventually and we all sort of start scrambling and and pretend like we didn't understand the roots of it when it's quite clear what the roots are of it in this case. And I think that Iraq and, and you know, even here in the US, there, there should be, um, it's very, you know, can. It's very right to have very uh, steep worries about where this leads.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, um, as always, uh, you know, when you put one of these things out and you look into you know, the world of war war crimes, and uh, yeah, which is the, the the very essence of what this substack is all about. So um, it's fascinating, Holly. And you know, thank you for that. And we'll talk to you next time.
1: Thank you, Dennis.